The sermon text for this morning is Genesis chapter 41. There will not be a New Testament reading um, due to the length of, of our passage. Genesis chapter 41. Did you hear now the reading of the Word of God? Genesis 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk full and good, seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians. But there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of the Pharaoh's dream 
means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select discerning and wise men, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let him select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Eseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So far the reading of God's most holy word, we do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it this morning. The story that we are considering today is rather straightforward and simple. It really is an amazing story as we learn of the exaltation of Joseph from this very low position that he was in. But it's not... It's not a complicated story. 
It's very simple and it's easy to understand on the surface. Uh, But please notice that the implications of the story are very deep and profound. And my objective in this sermon today is to go beyond a surface reading of the story of Joseph and to draw out some of the important inferences and implications that are contained within it. I have three observations to make this morning. I think more could be stated, but these three will have to suffice given the time that we have together. Uh, One, the story of Joseph must be considered in light of the promises made to Abraham. We must remember this and recognize it. For in Joseph, these promises were initially and partially fulfilled. Two, the story of Joseph demonstrates that the Lord is God Most High and sovereign over all creation and over all the nations of the earth. And three, the story of Joseph demonstrates that the proper response to the knowledge of God's sovereign will is responsible and wise action. So let us consider these three three things one at a time. First of all, let us see that the story of Joseph must be considered in light of the promises made to Abraham. Stated a bit differently, we cannot forget the promises made to Abraham as we read the story of Joseph, but we must recognize that what Joseph experienced in his humiliation and exaltation was in fulfillment to those promises previously made. I might go beyond this to say that when we read the entire Pentateuch, that is to say the first five books of the Old Testament, what they are are the story of the initial and partial fulfillment of the promises made to the patriarchs. And if I were to go even further, I would say that the whole of the story of the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New, looks back upon and rests upon the foundation of the promises originally made to the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham. Uh, So important were these promises that the story of Scripture, including this story concerning Joseph and his exaltation in the land of Egypt, is rooted in them. What were the promises made to Abraham? Essentially, the Lord promised him, saying, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know that these promises ultimately have reference to the Christ who would come from Abraham's loins, but we Notice here in the book of Genesis and in the Pentateuch and in the rest of the story of Holy Scripture that uh, these promises were fulfilled in many ways, uh, partially until fully being fulfilled in the coming of the Christ. And when we consider the story of Joseph, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of these precious promises made to Abraham. Consider five things. One, in the life of Joseph, we see the beginning of the great nation that was promised to Abraham. To Abraham it was said, you will become a great nation We know that that nation will be, in due time, the nation of Israel. And of course, the twelve tribes of Israel would descend from Joseph and his brothers also. But it is becoming apparent that it was through Joseph that his brothers, and thus the nation of Israel, would be saved. They would be preserved through Joseph in Egypt. So we are beginning to see the formation of this great nation that was promised Abraham those many years earlier. The names of the sons born to Joseph in Egypt should sound familiar to you, for they would become two of Israel's tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means to cause to forget. And Joseph named his firstborn this, saying, For God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Uh, We are not to read this and to assume that Joseph literally forgot about 
the hardship he had experienced in the past, nor about his father's house. In fact, the rest of the story of Joseph will make it clear that he did not forget these things literally. But what he is saying here when he named Manasseh, Manasseh, is that the joy of bearing a son by the daughter of Potiphar caused all of that pain and sorrow to be greatly diminished. It seemed like nothing to him after bearing this son whom he had named Manasseh. You and I have experienced something similar to this, I'm sure, where when we are in the midst of that dark period of time in our lives, it seems as if we have no hope and the the, the, the feeling of despair can be at times overwhelming. But once the Lord brings us out of that period of time and brings us into days that are more pleasant, we look back upon those times and we seem to forget how bad they were. We go, the Lord is faithful to us and we rejoice. And so here we see that Joseph, having been humiliated, humbled in the pit, has now been brought out. He is exalted and here he bears a son and he names his name Manasseh, saying, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Ephraim means fruitful. And Joseph named him, his second son, this, saying, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I think this name had a prophetic quality to it, for Ephraim would become the largest and most fruitful tribe in all of Israel. The point is this, in the story of Joseph, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Through Joseph and the salvation accomplished by him, Abraham would become a great nation, that is to say, the nation of Israel. Two, remember that the Lord promised to bless Abraham. And do we not clearly see that Joseph was truly blessed of the Lord? Joseph was a true son of Abraham. He descended from Abraham's loins. More than that, He had the faith of Abraham. He was a true son of Abraham. And do we not clearly see that Joseph was truly blessed of the Lord? But I want you to take special notice of this. Being blessed of the Lord does not always involve external blessings. It is possible to be blessed of the Lord both in the pit and also in the palace as Joseph was. Both in his humiliation and in his exaltation, Joseph was blessed, for the Lord was with him in both places to sustain him in every circumstance. Again, he was a blessed child of Abraham in his pain and in his prosperity, for he knew the Lord and was also known by him. I want you to listen to the following passages, all of them from the Psalms. And I want for you to learn what it means to be truly blessed. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 is familiar. Blessed is the man, we are told. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. To be blessed of the Lord, a blessed man is one who who does not live a life of sin, but instead delights in the law of the Lord and obeys God and all of these things. That is where true blessing is found. Psalm 32.2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Truly blessed is the one, in other words, who, whose sins are forgiven, uh, who have been forgiven by the Lord. 
Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So we are blessed when we take refuge in our God. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So we are blessed when we trust in the Lord. We are blessed when we trust in Him and not in the arrogant ones who live on this earth. Psalm 94, 12-14 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, in whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. It is indeed a blessing to be disciplined by our God. Psalm 112.1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. I think most assume that blessing, that is to say true happiness, is found in the things of this world and is always accompanied by pleasant circumstances. But those who are godly know that to be blessed, that is to say truly happy, is to know the Lord and to be known by Him, to have one's sins forgiven, to walk in the commandments of the Lord and to take refuge in God and in the Christ that He has sent. So it is possible to be blessed both in the pit and in the palace if the Lord is with us. We see that in the life of Joseph. To Abraham it was promised that he would be blessed of the Lord and here Joseph, the true son of Abraham, was truly blessed. Three, remember that the Lord also said to Abraham, I will make your name great. That must have been an astonishing thing for Abraham to hear. Uh, For who was he? He was just an individual person wandering from his homeland to a land that he did not know. His clan was so small, and yet the God of heaven spoke to him saying, I will make your name great. And here we see A fulfillment of that in the story of Joseph, who again was a true son of Abraham. His name, the name of Joseph, and therefore the name of Abraham through him, was made great. At first he was only a young Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guard in Egypt. That is what the cupbearer called him when he first mentioned him to Pharaoh in verse 12. He was a nobody. He was just a young Hebrew who was in prison. That's all that he was. But notice how the Lord exalted Joseph and made his name great. After interpreting the dreams and giving wise counsel to Pharaoh, Joseph was exalted in Egypt to second in command. Concerning Joseph, Pharaoh said in verse 38, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? He made him overseer of all his house, And all of Pharaoh's people were placed under his authority. In verse 1 we read, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh even took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. What a transformation. What a turn of events for Joseph to be plucked out of that pit and exalted to such a high place in Egypt of all places. And so we see that the Lord made Joseph's name great. 
And again, in this we have a partial fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that his name would be great. In fact, we have a demonstration that God is able to do such a thing. That is to take someone of no significance at all and to make their name great. He did it in Joseph. He will do it with God's people to all eternity. Now, friends, I think it is very important to recognize the way in which Joseph's name was made great. His name was made great through suffering. His name was made great as he remained humble and faithful to God in the midst of the trial. His name was made great as he patiently entrusted himself to the Lord to lift him up at the appointed time. His name was made great not because he, Joseph, made it great on his own, being driven by selfish ambition and conceit. Instead, his name was made great because the Lord made it great according to his plan, in his time, and by his power. I think nothing more could be, nothing could be more obvious than this that, that Joseph did not exalt himself. How could he? He was powerless to exalt himself, but God exalted him at the proper time. And I believe that in the life of Joseph, we have a paradigm or a pattern for the Christian life. We too should expect to be exalted in due time. Don't you long for that day when Christ returns to make all things new, and you are exalted to that privileged place at the Father's table? There is nothing wrong for desiring that. In fact, we should expect it and, and, and hope for it. But we too should expect suffering in the here and now. We should not be surprised, discouraged, or dismayed by it. We should entrust ourselves to the Lord, knowing that He will sustain us in good times and in bad, and that He will lift us up at the appointed time, even if that means it is only in the life to come. And we should not seek to make a name for ourselves. Instead, we should walk faithfully, and live for the glory of God. If the Lord wills to make our name great in this life as He did with Joseph, then so be it, and may God get the glory in it. But if the Lord wills that we remain in the pit, in that place of difficulty, then so be it. May God get the glory even in that. This was the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? He lived in this same way. He suffered. He submitted Himself to the will of the Father, only being concerned to do the Father's will. He said, that is my food, to do the Father's will. And He patiently endured that suffering until God the Father exalted Him to that place of privilege, to second in command, as it were, in the kingdom of God, the right hand of the Father. It should be the way of the Christian too. For to this you have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He, the Christ, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. A little bit later on in Peter's epistle, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. In the life of Joseph, we have a paradigm for the Christian life. It too was the way of Christ. And Peter tells us that this is what we have been called to because Christ has suffered for us. For, see that Abraham was also promised that those who dishonor him would be cursed. And we see a partial fulfillment of this in the life of Joseph. Uh, he was dishonored, remember, by his own brothers. Though they were 
descended from Abraham according to the flesh. They did not appear, at least at that time, to have the faith of Abraham. And they dishonored Joseph. They persecuted him and put him in the pit and even sold him into slavery. But notice as the story of Joseph begins to unfold that they were the ones, and we have not really gotten there yet, but we anticipate this part of the story. They were the ones who were subjected to famine in their homeland. Whereas Joseph was raised up to this position of great power in Egypt, a great salvation being accomplished through him. Five, notice that Abraham was promised that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Abraham must have wondered how that would possibly come to pass. And again, these promises, this promise, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, had its ultimate fulfillment in the Christ that would come from his loins. Christ Jesus was the Savior of the world, remember, and not just the Savior of the Jewish people. So there we have the full and final fulfillment of this promise made. But here in the life of Joseph, we see a partial fulfillment of this. Notice that the Egyptians would be saved from famine through Joseph, the true son of Abraham. The Egyptians were blessed because they had Joseph the Hebrew in the midst of them. And so all of this is to point out and to say that we can, as we consider the story of Joseph, we must remember the precious promises made to Abraham. We cannot lose sight of those. We must see that as the story of Scripture is developing and unfolding, those promises made to Abraham are always in the background. They serve as a kind of foundation from which these stories spring. These promises were fulfilled initially and partially, not fully and finally, in the life of Joseph. Secondly, the second point of the sermon today is that the story of Joseph demonstrates that the Lord is God most high and sovereign over all creation. This is one of the major inferences or implications of this story. It is widely understood that the Egyptians believed in many gods. In their view, the sun was a god, the Nile was a god, and so too their kings were regarded as gods. But here in the Joseph story, it is made abundantly clear that the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Joseph, is in fact God Most High. Pharaoh, the the, the king of Egypt, and, and the Nile were subject to Him, that is to God Most High. They could not resist His word nor frustrate His decrees. Notice that these dreams that Pharaoh had, they troubled Pharaoh. In verse 8, we read that in the morning, his spirit, the spirit of Pharaoh, was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. These dreams troubled Pharaoh not only because they were strange dreams. You have probably awoken in the middle of the night after a strange dream and have been troubled by it, not because there was anything meaningful about the dream, but just because it was strange, it, it bothered you. And I'm sure that there was an element of that in in Pharaoh's heart. I mean, can you imagine seeing all of this transpire? These thin, ugly, anemic cows swallowing up fat, plump, and juicy cows. I mean, it's a strange dream. That would have been enough to trouble any man. But Pharaoh also knew that these dreams contained an ominous message for Egypt. The cow was really a national symbol in Egypt The cow represented Egypt. And the fact that they came up out of the Nile, that river being so important to Egypt, was also ominous, I'm sure. And though Pharaoh did not know what exactly the dreams meant, I think he sensed that the message was not good. 
And the Pharaoh was further frustrated when the diviner priests and wise men of Egypt were unable to provide an interpretation for him. Notice that from time to time, the Lord does humble us to make us realize how small and powerless we actually are. Oftentimes, we don't think about it. But from time to time, something will happen in our lives where we realize that we are small and powerless. And perhaps the Lord was doing something like this with Pharaoh. Perhaps He was bringing him low so that he might look not to himself nor to his trusted advisors, but to God who alone can save. Perhaps here the Lord was humbling Pharaoh. And I do wonder, has the Lord done this for you? Has He humbled you so that you might see how weak and helpless you really are? Has He brought you to that place where you abandon all confidence in yourself and hope in the things of this world to call upon His name instead? Now, whether or not Pharaoh was brought to that place of utter dependence upon God, the text does not say. I tend to think not. But notice that God, the God of Joseph, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, provided the interpretation for Pharaoh. In verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice that Joseph immediately directs attention away from himself and to God, saying in verse 16, It is not in me. In other words, Pharaoh, don't get the wrong idea. The power to interpret dreams is not in me. Perhaps, the way that, is, perhaps that is the way that Pharaoh viewed his, his magicians and his wise men, his diviner priests. Perhaps he thought that these men have within themselves inherently this special talent, this special ability, this special knowledge. Joseph wants nothing to do with that. He directs attention away from himself and he directs attention to God, saying in verse 16, It is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is the generic name for God that is used here, but clearly it is a reference to God, that is to say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He gives glory to God. And in verse 25, when Joseph gave the interpretation, he gave glory to God again, saying, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, meaning both of these dreams have the same meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And so here we have Pharaoh, who probably views himself as divine, We have Pharaoh who looks to the sun and sees it as divine and to the Nile and it as divine and has all of his hope placed there. But here, the God of heaven, the one true God, reveals through Joseph what the dreams mean in order to reveal to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Pharaoh is about to realize that really he has no power to change the will of God, the decree of God, but is utterly helpless and dependent upon his good favor. God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all nations. His plans and purposes will be accomplished. Job came to this realization after suffering trial and tribulation and said, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There is nothing that man can do, no matter how powerful man is, no no matter how smart or talented he is, there is nothing that man can do to thwart your purposes. And it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the powerful king of Babylon, also came to this understanding. The Lord did something similar with him. After being humbled by the Lord, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar said. He blessed the Lord Most High. 
and praised and honored Him who lives forever, saying, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And so here was arrogant King Nebuchadnezzar brought to that low and humble place and brought to that realization that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, the one true God, He is exalted above all things. And that He, even as powerful king of Babylon, has no power at all before Him. He will accomplish His purpose. No one can stay or resist or frustrate His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Call into question His purposes. This God who is the sovereign King of the universe, notice, does sometimes reveal His plans and purposes to man. It's easy to just look past this and to overlook this profound uh, implication that is contained within the text. Uh, God Most High is sovereign over all, But do you ever step back and marvel at the fact that this same God who created the heavens and the earth also has revealed Himself to us? And that He makes and has made a habit of revealing His plans and purposes. This same God, God Most High, also condescends, comes down low to man and makes Himself known. He he doesn't have to do this. You, You understand that. Not at all. He would do no wrong to leave us just kind of wandering in the dark concerning who He is and what His plans and purposes are. But God, in His mercy and in His kindness and in His grace, reveals Himself to to fallen and sinful creatures. Here He even reveals His particular plan to, to Pharaoh, a pagan idolater and to the people of Egypt, so that they might prepare then to endure this famine. I don't know what God's plans and purposes were ultimately in doing this, but what I am saying right now is we serve a God who reveals Himself to us, and who has revealed Himself to us in ages past, and who has revealed Himself to us supremely in His Son, the eternal Word of God, come in the flesh. It's astonishing. It's an act of mercy and grace on behalf of God towards fallen sinners that He would make Himself known and reveal His plans and purposes to us. Here we have one of those times where God did such a thing. Joseph said, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. In other words, the two dreams about the cows and the wheat stalks have the same meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what He is about to do. Let us not forget nor take for granted that we worship and serve a God who speaks. We worship and serve a God who speaks. He graciously reveals His will to us. And when God speaks, we would do well to listen. When He gives us His word, we would be wise to obey it. And He has given us His word. He has spoken through His Son. This leads me now to the third and final point of this sermon. The story of Joseph demonstrates that the proper response to the knowledge of God's sovereign will is responsible and wise action. When God used Joseph to reveal to Pharaoh what it was that he was about to do in bringing seven years of famine 
after seven years of great plenty. Joseph did not throw his hands up in the air and say, Oh, well, what will be, will be. Did you notice that? He reveals the meaning of the dreams. He says, Pharaoh, God is telling you what he's about to do. He's going to do it. But that's only half of what Joseph said to the Pharaoh. What else did Joseph do? He went on to propose a plan of action. He went on to say, therefore, here is what we should do. And friends, this should always be our response to the revealed will of God. It should always be followed by action and by obedience. This is especially important, I think, for those who are reformed to to hear and to be reminded of. We have a very high view of God, do we not? We teach that He is sovereign. In fact, we do teach that what will be, will be. In other words, God has decreed from eternity past all things that will come to pass. We confess that to be true. We know that He is sovereignly even now bringing about His decree through His providence. That is true. What will be, will be. Uh, We agree with that statement. But the proper response to God's revealed will is not inactivity, but it is responsible action. It is obedience to God's commands. Brothers and sisters, will all of God's elect be brought to glory? Not one will be lost. Not one will be lost. So what should we do then? Should we throw up our hands and say, what will be, will be, and sit idly by, waiting for God to call us home? No. We're to take action. We're to be diligent in prayer. We're to be be diligent in obedience individually. We're to be diligent in our obedience corporately as a congregation. We're to preach the gospel because God said that we are to preach the gospel. We're to do so diligently until the Lord returns. Because while we serve a God who is sovereign over all things and who will certainly accomplish His purposes, He is bringing those purposes about through the responsible actions of His creatures. We see that here in the Joseph story. When God used Joseph to reveal to Pharaoh what it was that he was about to do in bringing seven years of famine after seven years of plenty, again, Joseph proposed a plan. And this, friends, should always be our response to the revealed will of God. Notice that it was not only the fact that Joseph could interpret the dreams that prompted Pharaoh to promote him to second in power in Egypt. It was also that Joseph proposed a wise plan. In other words, Pharaoh promoted Joseph to this high place because he gave the interpretation, but also because there was wisdom in this young man. He proposed a wise plan. After giving the interpretation of the dream, he said, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. I don't know if he was thinking to himself, maybe it will be me. I kind of doubt that he even thought that that would be a possibility. But he said, Pharaoh, this is what you should do. Select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This is wise advice. And when Joseph proposed the plan One, he demonstrated that he was sure that the Lord would bring this about. Do you notice that? Here's the interpretation, Pharaoh. And so sure am I that this is the word of God and that it will absolutely come to pass. I am telling you, this is what you have to do. 
you have to follow this course of action. He demonstrated that he was sure that the Lord would bring this about too. He demonstrated a true care and concern for the Egyptian people. I suppose it would be possible for a Hebrew who had been mistreated in the way that he had been mistreated in Potiphar's house and also in the prison, left there and forgotten by the cupbearer after he was restored to his position. I suppose it would be possible for a young Hebrew like this to say, well, this is great. There's going to be seven good years and then there's going to be a terrible famine and all these wicked sinners are going to die. No. Instead, he proposes this plan because he had care and concern for the Egyptian people. He says, here's what you're to do. And in this we see one example of how Abraham would bless the nations. Here in Joseph, we see Abraham blessing the nations. Three, he demonstrated that he was wise. And for this reason, Pharaoh said, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? What an awesome statement coming from this pagan and idolatrous king. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, etc., etc. Stories like this one, brothers and sisters, though they be simple and straightforward on the surface, they do have a profound impact upon the way that we view God and the way that we view ourselves and our position before Him in the world. In this little story, we are reminded that we serve a God who is faithful to keep His promises. He blesses His people both in the pit and in the palace. He is able to exalt His people in due time according to His will. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Nothing can thwart His plans or frustrate His purposes. And He is gracious to reveal Himself to us. Brothers and sisters, may we listen to Him when He speaks. May we be found actively obeying His every command and eager to keep His revealed will. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We are unfaithful, Lord. We are so fickle. We are so up and down. But You are the faithful and constant One who never changes. And we rejoice in this. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. That You have provided for us a way of salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank You that You are faithful to keep Your promises. We thank You that You are with us in the pit and in the palace. God, I pray for all of Your people who are hearing Your Word proclaimed this morning, that they would rest assured of these things, and that it would cause them to walk with confidence in this world. May it cause our love for You to increase, Lord, as we consider how good You are to us. And Father, for those who do not yet know Christ, who have not placed their faith in Him, I pray that they would come to that place of realizing the severity of their sin, their guilt before You, their tremendous need. I pray that they would see that Christ is the solution to all of that, for He is the Lamb of God who has been provided to take away the sins of all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Father, may we look to Him, may we trust in Him, and cling to Him always, to the glory of Your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.